Hey guys, Jim Cox, and I'm here today with an interview with Bob Funk. He is the director and leader CEO of Labor Lab, an organization that helps educate people on what's going on in terms of labor rights and kind of the struggle for labor in the modern economy. So Bob, thanks for taking the time to chat today. Thank you so much for having me. It's, uh, it's a real honor to be on. And thanks for uh, paying attention to this really important issue that we're working on. It's a pleasure. Um, you know, I've been, I, I, I forget how I came across your organization, um, but it was a while ago and I've been getting your emails pretty consistently on in terms of, and in the emails, you pretty consistently uh, outline companies, um, behavior towards in terms of opposing labor activists and mm -hmm. the efforts to disrupt labor organization and we've seen a lot of successes recently with what's going on with amazon and with starbucks but you know there have been a number of defeats of that as well within those same organizations so it's kind of a hit or miss um so I appreciate all the work that you do. Why don't you tell us a little bit about your background? Like, how did you get involved with what is Labor Lab and what's your background in terms of how you got to where you are now? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I am a third generation union member. I come from a union family. Um, I also grew up in Montana, um, which has a very strong labor history going back to the Travolter of labor in uh, Butte and the labor wars that happened there. Um, my background was more political. I did a lot of campaigns um, until um, I did a stint on Capitol Hill. And after the 2010 elections, um, with what Scott Walker was doing in Wisconsin, I had to get back in the in the trenches and the fight. So I returned to the campaign world, and then um, after a couple cycles there, um, transitioned to the the entire reason that I was even <clears throat> excuse me involved in politics in the first place, which was labor issues. Um, so went to go work for a couple of labor organizations. Um, labor Lab was birthed out of um, uh, the fact that the majority, in fact, there is a, a majority of Americans that think that it's illegal, like they can be legally fired for trying to start a union in their workplace. We've seen that um, in all of the polling surveys that we do. There's a huge lack of understanding about the legally protected right to start a union, specifically under the National Labor Relations Act. Um, and so we started with that. So why, why is that difference there? Like if there's a law that exists that protects that right, why do most people think like, well, if I do this, then that's illegal. I'm going to get fired by my employer. Why is that difference there? I think um, there are a couple of answers to that question. I think, you know, starting from, uh, you know, in high, when I was in, back in the day when I was in high school, I took a business class. There wasn't a labor class offered. No one throughout their entire education um, is actually educated on their legally protected rights. Then on top of that, and this is where we really got into the watchdog part of this with uh, the union busting is there's an entire industry 
that has been built and um, over 70 years really designed to um, misinform workers and so doubt in what their rights are. Um, and they've been much better funded than um, folks like us that are trying to tell, explain to people that they do have a legally protected right it is illegal for their employer to retaliate um, and take action. And so that's a big part of it. Um, we want to spread that education because I've seen firsthand the difference between um, a workplace where the workers organizing are aware of their rights and aware of what's illegal for their employer to do, because it's really their employer that can be doing the illegal stuff. And uh, um, an organizing workplace where no one's aware of their Section 7 and Section 8 rights under the National Labor Relations Act. Those two very short sections of law um, make a huge difference in um, whether or not a campaign is successful. And it's not just unions, it's also like mutual aid and concerted activity is also protected on that. Um, so if you have grievances in your workplace and a couple of you and your workers go to get it addressed, you cannot be retaliated against. And I mean, it's been pretty systematic to suppress that and make people question it, which is what this entire union busting industry makes their millions doing is sowing doubt, lies and misinformation. So one of the challenges so really there in, in, in doing that, though, like let's say a worker does have a, a grievance or a group of workers have a grievance and the employer does retaliate, um, I mean, it takes money to then go to court to try to re-get your job, to re-get your job. And, and most people honestly don't have that. And you're you're running up against corporate interests that have basically an unlimited bankroll, right? So what's yep. what's a worker to do? Yeah, you're you're absolutely right. I mean, we do have these um, fundamental legal rights to have a union in the workplace, but the enforcement of it is beyond lacking. Um, we have two issues. Um, we have an un underfunded agencies like the Department of Labor and the National Labor Relations Board. Um, they're underfunded, under-resourced to actually enforce the law. Second, the repercussions for violating someone's right to unionize are laughable. Um, literally, if um, an employer is found guilty of violating a worker's Section 7 rights, they basically just have to put up a flyer. I'm not kidding. They just basically have to put up a flyer in the workplace saying, geez, we're sorry, we'll never do it again. Like there are no financial um, repercussions. I mean, another example is if a worker is terminated illegally um, and forced to NLRB a year later makes a decision, they reinstate the worker. Um, but the employer is only forced to do give them the back pay. If they went and got another job, that's subtracted by the is subtracted from the back pay that the employer owes the employee. I mean, it's a joke. So one of the biggest things that could be done to fix this, and this is not a, how the NLRA, the National Labor Relations Act, was supposed to be enforced. It was gutted a few years after um, it was signed into law by um, union busters and pro business special interests, um, but something that would drastically fix this is um, is a lot of what's included in the PRO Act, which obviously we know has stalled out in Congress, but what that would, the PRO Act, the Protect the Right to Organize Act, 
Okay. Um, I wasn't really aware of that. It, so what is what is that uh, what is that project? So, so a couple of things. Um, I mean, we I was really hopeful. It was parts of it were close to being included, or large parts of it were included in the Build Back Better plan, but um, that obviously died at the hands of a couple of um, senators. Um, big things that the PRO Act would do is have financial repercussions um, for violating Section 7 rights. Every time, for every violation, there would be um, massive financial penalties, which actually would probably disincentivize um, union busting. It would also, you know, going back to an example you brought up earlier of Amazon and Starbucks, I mean, it's super exciting what's happening, but they are entering the second phase of the union busting. This is one of the most effective parts of a union busting campaign is actually the bargaining. And uh, so Amazon, and they've already pretty much played this out, even though it's illegal, are going to slow roll the negotiating process as much as possible, make any illegal, um, illegal uh, objection they can, use any gimmick they can to drag out the process for so long that it deflates workers and, you know, half of the people that organize have left the organization at that point. Um, and this is very clearly laid out as a strategy. Mm. The PRO Act would have made it absolutely necessary that an, um, a contract had to be uh, negotiated and agreed upon within one year. Mm. Um, and that this is the biggest thing that like the ALU, the Amazon labor union is going to be facing. Um, we're obviously you know, we've got like um, some calls to action about Amazon needs to uh, negotiate in good faith because it is illegal to negotiate in bad faith. But then again, you know, it's like the enforcement of it is lacking. So, you know, obviously I'm supportive of the PRO Act. I'm supportive of a lot of changes we can make. Um, but one thing we're really trying to do is most Americans despise the tactics that are used by union busters. Um, whether it's forced captive audience meetings where workers are forced into a room um, to hear anti-union propaganda um, while their organizers are banned or getting kicked out of break rooms, which is illegal. Um, most Americans really oppose that. And so we are trying to, a lot of this information about the union busting industry lives in like uh, government filing boxes places and just it is not very accessible and so we're trying to make it much more accessible to the public to activists to labor um, union organizers so that they the information is powerful in terms of creating pressure um, you know starbucks and amazon get a lot of attention but union busting happens all over the country in big and small companies. And we're trying to bring attention to all those because if the community finds out what's happening to their neighbors and their family members when they go to work, there's usually some strong opposition to that. Mm -hmm. um, so that's really why we've moved so much in the direction of shining a light on this industry because it's really been allowed to operate in the dark without accountability for over half a century. Um, and it's a shame because things, the only way that you'll ever regulate something or change something is if people are aware of it. And that's true. That's why we've built this database. This is why we, um, you know, look into whenever a company hires a union buster to do a captive audience meeting, we do the research on them. We try to get the word out that, um, that, that, that has happened in someone's community because it's really the local pressure where we see the most, mm. the most uh, results.
So one of the things that's interesting is if you look back historically, like, um, you know, there was obviously a lot of union activity in the uh, 30s um, based on what was going on in terms of the economic struggles people were facing. Um, and also, obviously, in the 70s. Now, in the 70s, obviously, the labor was at had a lot more clout and power at the time, but that was deflated over that period of time. It seems like this kind of um, corporate, I would say corporate behavior plus inflation plus wage dynamics seem to foster the need for people to organize. I mean, would you say that that's those are the three main factors, or is there something else that kind of historically makes labor organizing more attractive? Yeah, I mean, I think, um, you know, the, the explosion in organizing that happened in the 30s um, for the decades that followed, you know, that was a direct response to the first Gilded Age. Mm. Um, and we are right now living through a second Gilded mm. Age, um, perhaps even more extreme than the first Gilded yeah. Age. And those anxieties, um, that loss of um, control in terms of our workplaces, our democracy, our communities is felt strongly and labor unions are the um, strongest, best answer to those problems. The one other aspect I'd add in there about why we're seeing an increase in organizing is, I mean, we're seeing a lot from like young people, the, the organizing that's happening there. And I think you have this uh, generation that is, it's not just about pay and benefits, um, you know, they want flexibility, but it's about having agency in the workplace. It's about having a voice um, and having a say when you go to work and be treated like respect more than like the, you know, um, bread and butter issues that you, you often talk about. It's really a, like, I want to have some power in my workplace. Um, yeah. I mean, that goes to one of the, one of the things that I think tipped the balance in the seventies was this turn by corporations and by leaders of the economy to shareholder capitalism, Milton Friedman. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, the advent of Reagan and was really kind of the, the topping point and it was downhill from there in terms of labor. And, but this idea of, you know, everything that a corporation does is for the sole benefit of the shareholder is kind of what we've, been forced to live with over the past 40 years and the result is really kind of this predatory capitalism that we're we're seeing um, today are you familiar with robert heilbrunner's book the limits of capitalism um i don't think so no great book so. really dense he was a historian i think at uh, one of the new york universities um but wrote a book called Limits of, Limits of American Capitalism in uh, like the late 60s. And it really talked about stakeholder capitalism. And the mm -hmm. fact that in this period, you had 
corporations not just working with labor, but also with government, government agencies, with consumers. And you had this kind of multi, multi-supportive structure that contained capitalism, but also promoted it in a healthy way. Yeah. And we, we've obviously gotten away with that. What's nice to see with what you're describing is going back to, you know, this kind of stakeholder capitalism, which I think is a lot more healthy, not just for people, but also obviously for the planet. Yeah, I mean, um, so I wasn't familiar with that book. I'm very familiar with the thinking on that, um, the stakeholder capitalism, I mean, um, um, which probably originated um, from what you're talking about, I mean, for example, Senator Elizabeth Warren had a bill two years ago that would have forced companies um, over a certain number of employees to have um, workers on the board and community members on the board. Um, and I think that that is so absolutely important because it's not just about shareholders. You are the stakeholders in the community need to have a say because this idea that a corporation can just operate by itself within a box and not be responsible for the impacts it has on the rest of our society is absolutely ridiculous and it's destructive i mean like we're in a death spiral with this like short-sighted shareholder interest-driven um economy i mean that's the reason we're in a second gilded age here and things are, are not going well. Um, I mean, heck, it's not like uh, Franklin um, Roosevelt who signed the National Labor Relations Act was like a militant unionist or anything, yeah. but he was a smart guy that knew that if- He was among the elite. Working, he was one of the elite yeah. in terms of the, the rich and the powerful at that period of time. Yeah, and but he knew if the, our society and democracy was going exactly. to function properly, um, working people had to have agency and power. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's like, literally, we are not learning from our history. We're just repeating it again yeah. um, with the insane concentration of wealth we have in the 0.01%. I mean, it's absolutely absurd. While the rest of us are given less and less of a voice in our actual lives and how we spend most of us, half, half of our have our lives including our sleeping and you know waking hours um so it's just it's just simple human dignity that has been forgotten and ignored and so workers are being forced to um forcibly take it back um mm -hmm. whether it's through strikes or organizing or what have you so what um you mentioned the pro act and the effort to try to give more power to the department of labor and the uh National Labor Relations Board. Is there anything that the current administration can do, the Biden administration can do to try to promote the strength and the ability for people to organize into unions and to kind of protect people who want to, you know, see a more secure workplace? Yeah, I mean, there's um, <clears throat> a, there's a couple of things that could happen um, pretty quickly. One thing that I am incredibly supportive of is what's called the persuader rule. Um, right now, less than 10% of union busting activities get reported to the Department of Labor. 
a union buster really and the employer are only really obligated um, to report uh, union busting in the workplace if they've hired a union busting consultant to meet directly with um, workers. But if, for example, like what's happening in Starbucks, none of that is, gets reported to the Department of Labor mm. because they're, the union busters, the Jackson Lewis that they hired, aren't actually, um, uh, aren't meeting face-to-face with the workers. They're writing the scripts, they're you know, doing the polling, they're doing the message discipline, writing the propaganda all of that, but it's not reported because they're not meeting face-to-face. It's, um, it's called, it's a huge, it's called an advice loophole. It's an advisory one. Um, under the Obama administration, near the end of the second term, they did, um, the Department of Labor did put into place a persuader rule that said, you know, exactly what's happening at Starbucks, um, like you have to report that, that you are conducting an anti-union campaign. The, you know, the same way that labor act unions have to report everything that they do. Um, it was put into place, but before it could actually be implemented, um, Trump was elected and that rule went away. I'd love to see the Biden administration put that back into place because again, going back to what I was saying earlier, the reason this accountability matters is the only the only way that you can hold something accountable is if you know what is actually being done. Um, the second thing that we could do is, um, for example, the, the the filings that the union busting industry does have to um, file, they are legally obligated to do it within thirty days of starting their work. Constantly, we go through these records every single day. Constantly, I see ones where they filed it six months later, a year later. And there are no repercussions. Yeah. And why that matters is the union busting campaign is over. By so time someone like me can't say yell about it, um, and because it's after the fact. So you know, Department of Labor could start pushing back on this multi-million-dollar industry um, by making them actually follow the law. Um, so those are some you know kind of they're administrative. I realize that, but that's a big thing. And then third. Um, is not giving federal dollars to companies or consultants that make their livings infringing on the rights of other Americans. I mean, that just seems really, really basic, right? Um, Today, for example, this morning, I was looking at um, the the union busters that have been hired by Amy's Kitchen, a progressive company to bust workers in Oregon um, and I was looking at one of the union busters they hired, and they received sixty thousand dollars in PPP during COVID. Wow! Why are we subsidizing consultants that make their living infringing on my rights, my neighbors' rights, my coworkers' rights? That just seems like a basic. So there, you know, there have been some moves to do that uh, in terms of like federal contracts. Mm-hmm. You know, reexamining the U.S. government has a contract with Amazon. That's a lot of leverage. Yeah, that's yeah. a lot of leverage that they could utilize. So there are ways. Have you to reached out? Have you reached out to Marty Walsh, who's the Secretary of Labor? Yeah, about this. Yeah, and um, what kind I mean, of feedback? Not, have not, you not, not directly. Um, the people at the Office of Labor Management Centers and Department of Labor are amazing. They're amazing folks, but um, and they do God's work. They really do. Um, but they're just incredibly under resourced. Like. Marty Walsh's administration has been doing a 
Like they're doing some cool, innovative stuff. They don't have necessarily the resources um, to get out there. That's something that we're trying to do. For example, like they've launched a tip line where if there's a union buster in your workplace um, and, and to, to report it to the Department of Labor so that they can check to see if they've actually filed uh-huh. um, for that work. Yeah. Of course, you know, there's a handful of people that actually know about this tip line. That's the yeah. problem, right? Yeah. Like it's yeah. like the intention is so perfect. It's just um, we we have a lot to do when, within and outside of the labor movement in terms of educating people on um, what these filings are, where these tip lines are. And so we are just trying to f- be one puzzle piece in the, yeah. the larger scheme here. So how does how do labor unions work or how does labor organization work in other countries compared to here? I mean, I imagine here it's, we're looking at uh, worst case scenarios, but um, like, what is it like in uh, France or Germany or England, for example? I mean, that's, that's such a good point you bring up. I mean, it's laughable that um, uh, the business community and right have successfully labeled um, unions in the United States as big labor when we're literally the have the lowest density of a membership in the Western Hemisphere. I mean, it's just it, it's it's laughable. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, going back to what we were talking about with the stakeholder capitalism. I mean, that's standard practice in a lot of um, Western countries. I mean, the model, the most well-known model is in Germany um, where they have this and you know what, they have a lot of industrial and labor peace, right? Um, And they're a very wealthy country and they have a good uh, welfare uh, state. I mean, like you can have both (laughs) and it's pretty simple things that you put in place. Um, You know, when I talked to, I recently did, um, I was talking to some folks in Great Britain and, you know, explained our labor law and just, absolutely floored about what a joke it is in terms of um, enforcement and repercussions for silencing workers and their right to self-organize. Yeah, we have incredibly weak labor law in this country, which was intentional under the Taft-Hartley Act, which was Mm -hmm. the law that was passed to gut the National Labor Relations Act um, and, and respond to the wave of organizing. So, I mean, yeah, we have a long way to go on that front. And our law is clear on what the rights are. It's just the enforcement mechanisms that have been, you know, taken away. And then and then a very well-funded network of think tanks and advocacy groups designed solely to um, make it more difficult, more, more bureaucratic, uh, and more intimidating to start a union in your workplace. Are there think tanks that um, actually um, are supportive in terms of doing research around creating a positive labor environment and, and unions? Um, well, obviously, I'd like to tout our watchdog organization group, but um, you know there are. Um, I think like a, a great example um, in terms of that talk about how radically different our economy would be and how much it would work for most Americans if we just had, well, a lot of what we we're just talking about, but that's the Economic Policy Institute, EPI. Um, they're great people. Um, they're one of the larger think tanks that 
um, put out research on the difference. And, you know, like so, some of our research was originally inspired by that. You know, they had a big report years ago about um, gene investing and we're like, this is great, but we need to be yelling about this every day. And so that's why we started and uh, we're the only organization that's looking at this every single day to see what's going on and flag stuff because who else is going to dig through all that paperwork? Yeah. 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 What, um, you know, one of the things that I've seen in terms of the work that I do, and I do socially responsible investing. So, you know, I'm yeah. trying to help clients match up their investments with their values. And one of the things that I've seen with people that I work with um, is this trend towards large corporations um, basically turning full-time employees into 1099 contractors in order to be able to not pay obviously health insurance, life insurance, disability, or retirement benefits. And they might pay the employee a little bit more, but obviously not enough to make up the difference for the benefits that they're foregoing. And, you know, it's, you know, how does that trend play into this dynamic of what's happening with labor? Yeah, I think the, you know, uh, the 1099 gig economy, um, which is really what it is. And you're right. I mean, like the 1099, the purpose of a 1099 um, is so that you don't have to pay benefits um, and you're moving the tax burden onto your employee because um, they have to pay the employer side of taxes too. Um, it's very crafty. And then another part of it is because of how our labor law is written, is um, it makes it more difficult for people to organize. I mean, that's the big fight that we're you're seeing with you know things like Uber, for example. Like they clearly are employees; they should have a right to bargain with their employer, but they're independent contractors. You know, it's it's complete and utter nonsense. Um, that said, people have come. So there, you have a problem, right? There's this legal issue with how do you organize, um, and I think that's why you you've seen answers to this and whether it's worker centers or, you know, just collective action being taken. But again, going back to the, like the, the death spiral that some of these people have put themselves in is they moved everyone over to 1099 so that they could avoid all of the benefits, the taxes and possibly the union. But as a result, workers are really realizing they're getting the, bum end of this deal and i think it's militarized a lot more um workers and what i mean that is like okay this is ridiculous i am actually going to take a stand on this issue um so in some ways it's very much contributed to the reason i think we're seeing a rise in the interests of um, workers to organize i mean we know right it's, uh, it's, Three in four Americans think that we should have more unions in this country. One in two Americans wants a union in their workplace. So why is only why are only one in ten? Right? Like clearly something is not working in our system. And I would say it's the labor law and the violations of those rights from the union busting industry. Um, so is it just so, a matter yeah. of getting out and voting for pro labor? Um, representatives in Washington, D.C.? 
is there anything that we can do on state levels that would address um, labor issues? For example, I live in Pennsylvania. Like, it does does it matter, like state law, um, in terms yeah. of looking at labor issues when it comes to like elections and who you put into office? Yeah. So, two part answer on that one. State law absolutely really matters. I mean, um, as I said, I'm a Montana boy. Like uh, I'm, I'm proud of our history out here, um, but something dramatic happened in um, the last cycle. And that was a um, Republican governor was elected, which had not happened in almost two decades in Montana. And so it was the first time that um, Republicans had almost super majorities in the House and Senate and a Republican governor. Um, we were the first state um, in the country to defeat every anti-union bill, including right to work, despite mm. those majorities. And that's wow. by building a coalition and supporting. So the reason I say this is it really matters who you elect, but it also matters how active and engaged your base is. I mean, union members in Montana made a lot of noise um, including not just to Democrats, but to Republicans about don't take away my freedom to be in a union. And uh, they were receptive to that. So, I mean, going back to the Taft-Hartley Act, that, um, that allowed for right to work, which is, it has racist roots. And it's, the reason it exists is solely to make it more difficult to create worker power in the workplace. That, Law, though, is implemented at the state level. So mm. that's why you have some right-to-work states and you have some that aren't yeah. right-to-work states. And the, But the more important part to me, though, is we can't just be playing defense, right? Like yeah. our goal shouldn't be to prevent right-to-work. Our goal should always be organizing and engaging workers. So, yes, it absolutely, get involved in politics, you know, um, vote for pro-worker um, candidates, pro-union candidates, but also build grassroots in your workplace power because when the political system fails us and the economic system fails us that's that's why unions exist because they're the last standing democratic institution to change things for the majority mm. um, i mean we know this right like we've seen the the authoritarian playbook it's go after unions first that is literally um um, step one in the, in the plan. And so why I'm saying that is like, if I, if I could choose between whether you're knocking a door for a candidate or knocking a door to um, build a relationship with your coworker and so that you have some agency in your workplace, I'm gonna pick the knocking on your coworker's door because that translates upwards. It's not a defensive posture. It's a, it's you're on the offense. Yeah. Um, and that's how you really are gonna, build the power. Um, and we see the trends that um, when people have workplace power, they tend to actually um, um, become more progressive on other issues after the fact. So um, that's where I think we should start. That's awesome. That's good advice. And um, so what, you know, how do you, how do you see things playing out over the next couple of years in this age of stagflation i mean are we i mean obviously a lot depends on the elections coming up in november um it's 2022 uh, 
is it just solely dependent upon the elections or is there can you make a prediction in terms of with what's going to happen over the next couple of years in terms of labor yeah i mean i'm always wary of making um predictions or anything like that but um i think you know this is not it's not the next cycle or even the one after that this is going to be a long long fight and not just a defensive fight but also i mean there's a new interest in workplace power so you know we're learning things every day the successes at um at the amazon union this is uh, successes with starbucks we're learning about a lot of this and but i think um within the labor movement there's this realization of like we have to return to a member-driven model an organizing model instead of relying on politics as the backstop because i mean you know we were just talking about the pro act it didn't pass you know um so but workers have gained power in the past without legal protections so we can do this and i think that's you have to return to the base because that's what will rise up and change things politically in our in our nation in our democracy we have to start um with people's work lives their family lives their community lives and um and so I think that there is a huge shift that is happening in the movement right now to shift more to that that yeah. model and like return to our roots. Yeah, I think that's great advice in terms of looking at it as a, a long game, not just <clears throat> something yeah. over cycle after cycle after cycle. But mm -hmm. the fact is, uh, when you look at like the development of AI and what's happening in terms of how it's changing the uh, the workforce and labor and people's expectations of, like you said, um, a family's financial security, their um, security in terms of if somebody gets sick or if somebody passes away, when you get to retirement, I mean, pensions are almost, you know, unheard of now, except for government employees, um, private pensions are, are are no more you know it's all on yeah. the individual and if the individual is you know left out to hang you know when they get to be 65 what are you going to do you know social security isn't enough to survive upon and there's yeah. just way too much economic chaos right now and in stagflation is going to foster this for years to come you know oh, yeah. and, and you know a lot of like what's happening with the um with inflation right now i mean like this is going to be used i mean it is absolutely absurd but um you know it's going to be used as like oh worker we're having to pay people too much and it's going to be used against workers which is absolutely ridiculous because we're seeing most corporations posting record profits which means that if you're posting record profits it means that you're price gouging yep. um but, you know, it's a really well-coordinated effort to blame it on someone asking for a $5 raise and in health insurance. Like, that is not the reason things are getting more expensive. It's it's price gouging. I mean, literally, it does not take a economist to figure that out. <laughs> um, like, oh, right, an economist or a rocket scientist, yeah. Exactly, exactly. Um, so I, I do think that that 
but at the same time, I think, you know, during the pandemic, um, we're still coming out of, of that and the lessons learned. I, I am hopeful are not being forgotten. I mean, what were everyone yelling about? Like the first few months of the pandemic, oh, holy cow, everyone should have sick paid leave so that they can actually like not get everyone else sick in their workplace and shut down their workplace. Everyone should have health insurance, you know? Everyone should have some child care. I mean, we really just, there was a moment of like, these are some pretty basic things. And then of course, you know, over the time, everything's gotten so politicized and the anti-worker forces are happy to see that where they don't actually have to talk about those issues anymore. And they can mm -hmm. talk about, you know, inflation again, but we cannot allow ourselves to forget um, what we need, um, what, what our basic needs are as working people. Um, so I'm hopeful, you know, because there is a tendency that inflation recession, I mean, it does both, right? It's, it's, it can invigorate and empower workers, but also scary um, yeah. when, when we face issues like this. So it's complicated. And I think it's that we have to remind ourselves to not get distracted by the shiny objects or the scapegoating or anything like that. Like there is, there's been a systematic degradation of the quality of our lives over um over the last half century really um for the working class families no doubt um this has been a great conversation and um you know like i said uh when we were off air uh we'll definitely have to do this more like i can see where we're gonna have to make a, a regular uh date so to speak, of uh, talking about these issues, because obviously they're not going away. If people want to learn more, how can they reach out to you? What's your, uh, what's the website? Yeah, so um, our website is laborlab.us. Um, and that's where you can find all of our very, um, very accessible information about the right to unionize takes all the legal jargon out of it but then it's also where we have our union busting tracker and database and our blog the steward if you're interested in um connecting with me directly my email is just funk that's my last name funk like the music at laborlab.us um and I mean, really, we are building a network of people that will help spread the word and spread awareness about the issues that we're focused on. So one of the easiest things to do to get involved is simply join our email list because we send, for example, when I was talking about the Amy's Kitchen union busting, we sent out an alert to people on our list that live in Oregon so that they can help get the word out in their communities and their local newspaper and all of that stuff. So um, then that's just laborlab.us slash subscribe, but you know, play around on the website and you'll see some stuff or reach out to me directly. Awesome. I appreciate it. And uh, again, uh, we'll stay in touch and uh, do this again. Thanks a lot, Bob. Absolutely. Thank you. Talk to you soon.